What we found was that uh, the consumption of plant-based food, we saw a statistically significant relationship with the formation of antibodies. I am going to suggest with considerable confidence that we have enough evidence to make a projection for what people ought to do with the COVID-19 virus. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Let's begin with a couple of questions. Do we already know what the best course of treatment is for COVID-19? And have we actually known for decades? My guest today is a legend in the nutrition world and has dedicated his life to exploring the connection between our health and our diet. And he says the answer to both of those questions is yes. Dr. T. Colin Campbell says what he learned about viruses while conducting the groundbreaking China study decades ago could be the key to dealing with the current coronavirus. You'll hear it's an idea that he is quite excited about. I had the opportunity to speak with him during the virtual Fairfax VegFest over the weekend, and this 40-minute conversation was nothing short of extraordinary. And I'm telling you, It flew by in an instant. But that is just really one example of looking to the past in order to see our future. Dr. Campbell also talks about a new book that he has in the works. One based on taking a look back at the history of nutrition research all the way back more than 200 years Even back then, we were learning about the connection between food and our health. So have we really known all of these answers for all of these years? And how then did we ever get so lost in terms of our health? This, today, is perhaps one of the most intriguing interviews we've ever done here on The Exam Room. But why stop at one Campbell when you can have two? Nelson Campbell will also be on the show today. He is the founder of Plant Pure Nation and works tirelessly to help bridge that nutrition knowledge gap that his father and I will speak about. Nelson is an entrepreneur. He is a philanthropist and a filmmaker, and it is an honor to have him on the show today to talk about the efforts that he and his team are making to help make the world a healthier place. So we have ourselves a lot to get into today. So let's not waste another second. Let's dive right in with the author of The China Study and an inspiration to millions. This is is Dr. T. Colin Campbell. 
Dr. T. Colin Campbell, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am to speak with you here at the virtual Fairfax VegFest, as well as on the Exam Room podcast. I think that this is really going to be an extraordinary interview. Let's start by asking, first of all, how are you right now, given the pandemic? How, how are things at your house? <laughs> it's an interesting question. It's also a very personal question, obviously. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm of the age that is this is at the highest risk, as you know. Uh, I'm 86. I'm not embarrassed about that, but I'm 86. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also, also quite healthy. Uh, you know, thanks to consuming a plant-based diet for the last 30 years. For sure. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm in pretty good shape, as is my wife. And we were talking just before we started. I, I'm glad to hear that. We were talking just before we got started about how there really hasn't been specific to COVID-19, a whole lot of uh, information yet to come out between the connection between the severity of the virus, the outbreak and nutrition and how people are eating. We know about comorbidities and we can kind of draw some conclusions there, but really at the end of the day, that's just a hypothesis. But I understand that you uh, years ago have actually studied the effect of diet on a virus. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you know? Uh, yes, this comes from uh, our study in China, the comprehensive nationwide study that we did at that time. Uh, that has been uh, the subject of my book, The China Study, that was published now almost 20 years ago. But in any case, uh, in that study, we measured lots and lots of things having to do with the relationship between diet, lifestyle, and mortality characteristics, essentially. And in fact, uh, New York Times called it the most comprehensive study ever done in the history of medicine. I, I think it almost still holds that, that record in a sense. So we measured lots of dietary things having to do especially with nutritional characteristics. Uh, we also measured at the time four viral diseases but at least we, we were, that was a kind of rough approximation of these diseases, people dying from those diseases. But one, one of them, uh, hepatitis B virus, you know, we're studying some considerable detail. And I know there's obviously some specific effects on different viruses. Uh, what you know, some would say works on one virus, doesn't work on another. Of course, that's sort of true. But at the same time, uh, viruses in their terms of their infectivity have some common features, very much common features. When a virus, for example, invades uh, you know, our body, for example, uh, the body goes to work and tries to form antibodies. That's one of the first things that characteristics that happens. And that's across the board, essentially. Um, and it either succeeds or doesn't succeed in forming an antibody. In the meanwhile, the vi virus is doing its dirty work, which... Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, unfortunately, it, it's quite different for different viruses, of course. But uh, the principle is more or less the same. And so what we did in China with the hepatitis B virus was to look at possible nutritional characteristics that might be associated with the presence of antibody as opposed to antigen. We had methods to measure both, you know, both uh, characteristics of that virus. Uh, and we found something really interesting as I look back. And this incidentally involved a population of 8,900 adults. So it was a big study. It wasn't just a little, little study on the side. And uh, what we found was that measuring uh, nutritional characteristics in various, various and sundry ways, 
in terms of, let's say, some nutrients, in terms of food intakes, in terms of, let's say, the consequences that one might see in the serum as a result of consuming different kinds of viruses. And so we, we had access to quite a lot of data. And I had a chance to go back and then re-examine that this time. And what we found was that uh, the consumption of plant-based food, as indicated by, for example, the consumption of vegetables, for one thing, or as the consumption of, let's say, plant protein is another, or dietary fiber, or dietary thiamine, which is obviously comes from plants, we, we had these different characteristics. And those things I just mentioned, we saw a statistically significant relationship with the formation of antibodies. And in uh, one case, it was highly significant, the probability of point one level of probability, uh, incidentally, so it's really quite significant. In contrast, we also had a, a set of data, too, that related to the factors that are associated with antigen presence. That's an active virus, obviously. And so we had this comparison. It's these two sets of data. On one hand, we had nutritional characteristics associated with the antigen presence, and the second set of data with the, uh, with the formation of antibody. At the same time, we also had information, too, on the principal outcome of that virus. That's primary liver cancer. So we had mortality statistics on the outcome. We had, mortality, we had evidence on the uh, antigen presence as well as the antibody. Fascinating. Fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm talking to, I haven't published this. We have it in a big monograph. I really, I really should, by all accounts, uh, to publish this in a peer-reviewed journal, you know, have a nice, clear, clean analysis. But we have the uh, we have the statistics already now available. What we found as as plant food is increasing the diet, we see a greater uh, greater conversion of the antigen to the antibody. I mean, it's really quite impressive. And the and, and just to sort of uh, to confirm, you know, some of some of these kind of relationships. We obviously saw a highly significant relationship between hepatitis B uh, antigen and liver cancer mortality. So everything just kind of fell in line. Uh, and I would suggest, because this is, as I say, there's a lot of common features with this virus, with any other virus, uh, each having their own endpoints in, in a sense. Uh, what we saw in the hepatitis B virus situation, I am going to suggest with considerable confidence that we have enough evidence to make a projection for what people ought to do with the COVID-19 virus as well. And I, th I think, you know, I keep listening, in fact, I get quite upset listening to the news, especially the so-called experts talking about this. They're talking more and more about antibodies and antigens, and quite frankly, they're missing the point. None of them are, none of them are considering the kind of information that we have, which is dietary and nutritional characteristics. I'm excited about it. I would think that should that information get published in a peer-reviewed journal and it, it makes a big splash, I do suspect that it would make a significant splash, especially what we also know just kind of from a lay perspective, not being a doctor myself, but I do know having hosted this show now and speaking with so many experts such as yourself that a plant-based diet can really 
significantly improve all of these comorbidities, these underlying conditions that we hear so much about with this disease, this, these underlying conditions that make the severity of the symptoms so much stronger. And now you're coming on board with data that you've had for many years that backs up this, this hypothesis. I want to go back to that, that study that you did, the China study. And for those who aren't familiar with it, when you were examining these people and they were eating the plant-based diet, can you give us an idea of what their menu looked like? How restrictive was it? Did you have them on a very set menu or was it you give them certain parameters and as long as they adhered to that, they were okay? No, actually what, what you're referring to uh, perhaps it might be described as an intervention study. In other words, you give a group of people a certain specified kind of diet, compare it with another diet, if you will, and then record the information. We didn't, we didn't do that kind of study. This was an observational study where, in fact, we, we actually looked at the nutritional characteristics and lifestyle characteristics, if you will, in a total of 170 villages in rural China, plus another 32 in Taiwan. So we had a big, huge, robust cohort to work with. And then we had ranges, we had ranges of, uh, let's say, nutritional experience or viral exposure, ranges of experience and all these things. So we went from a low of, let's say, almost next to nothing in terms of animal protein consumption, for example, up to a high of a, a level that still is only about one-tenth of what we have here in the West. And so it was really, it's, it's correlations. Now, one, one thing you may not know, you probably have heard this, uh, some of the evidence that we're getting from the China, from the human part of the study, is of course based on correlations. Okay, but the correlations are are sufficiently robust, if you will, in terms of statistical significance because of the size of the population we had, 8,900 people, adults. Uh, but in any case, um, the 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 correlations that people get concerned about, and want to criticize, they'll say correlation does not infer causation. You may have heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true. That's true. Everybody says it. But unfortunately, they're, leave, they're leaving out one really important link when they make that kind of comment. Namely, correlation does not infer causation if, in fact, we are intending to search for a specific agent or specific cause of a specific disease. Okay? And that's understandable. That's understandable. If we say some, some nutrient components related to breast cancer, for example, just to give an example, and we identify one nutrient as being related or not related, uh, then we can't infer that that particular agent is really responsible for that particular outcome, okay? That, that's a given. We always can understand that. But quite frankly, that's not the way that nutrition behaves. And this is what people are missing. Nutrition is the, the nutritional effect is not the result of single nutrients affecting single outcomes. Nutrition is, a, is the effect of comprehensive nutrients working together through comprehensive mechanisms to produce a whole array of responses. This is a, sort of a very different worldview. But uh, I've been working on this up for some time, and I refer to it as the whole food plant-based diet. Okay? When you do it that way, then you look at correlations. You can see something. You can look at you know, a whole host of correlations, let's say, for example and to see if there's consistency between, let's say, certain dietary patterns and certain disease outcomes. Now, all of a sudden, correlation doesn't for causation. 
you're going to, I'm sure you'll be talking to a lot of people. They'll say, no, 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 I can't be. No, I would disagree with them vehemently. I'm confident of that interpretation. Uh, the, the correlation does infer causation. If we approach, if we sort of hypothesize, make the hypothesis in, in the right order. So um, that's the kind of study we did. And we had correlations of uh, various cor correlations that we could examine statistically and see how they go. And so what we saw is this pattern emerging. Wow. You know, as we approach a plant-based diet, and in rural China, by the way, uh, that was kind of interesting and quite different from this country, for example, because in rural China, they weren't consuming at that time. This is done back in 1983. They weren't consuming very much animal-based foods at that time. Uh, the highest county were still, you know, quite a bit lower than what we do. And so they weren't consuming very much animal-based food. And so we were examining a range of animal protein intake or animal food intake in a fairly narrow range, fairly narrow range. And so what we, when we are seeing an animal protein effect in a population like that, I'm talking about an effect that occurs with a fairly low intake of animal food. And that makes it even more powerful and more exciting because they see it that way, wow. Uh, and then contrast that way, let's say, with plant food intake, and that's, that's the kind of data we ended up with. I, I would suggest it's really quite robust. Let me ask you this. Given the enormous amount of animal proteins that uh, the typical American consumes, is it any surprise to you then that this country has been the hardest hit with the COVID-19 pandemic? I'm not surprised at all. Good question. Uh, we are, we really, our diet is as poor as it almost can get in many cases. And uh, not only because of the consumption of animal-based foods, but also because of the consumption of the so-called processed foods. that is mostly salt, sugar, and fat, you know, that sort of thing. Because in both cases, the animal-based food, the reason that it's significant is not just because of any nutrient in the animal-based food, protein is one, saturated fat is another, and so forth. But it's not just because of the animal food itself. As we increase the consumption of animal-based foods, and considering the fact that total food consumption is a zero-based uh, sum, as we can increase the animal-based food as a proportion of the total calorie intake, we decrease the consumption of, of plant-based foods. So when we look at correlation, for example, of, let's say animal food with whatever, whatever outcome, we're really looking at a combination effect of the animal-based foods on one hand, which stimulates disease formation, and the lack of adequate protein or uh, plant food intake, which uh, only adds to the effect. So this whole idea of consuming plant-based foods, uh, in my mind, is actually more robust than is generally talked about, and it's based on really substantial science. That's where I come from. I, I, I should add, just for the listener here in this case, and they probably know this, I, I came into this field uh, 65 years ago when I went to graduate school at Cornell University. And I did my doctoral dissertation and subsequently my early research career really was focused on the idea of what I believe that everyone else believed, uh, that uh, the more animal protein we consume, the better off we're going to be. I mean, animal protein was the center of the diet. We all knew that. 
generally translated in the form of let's eat meat, meat, milk, and eggs. And I was raised on a farm just west of Washington, by the way. Um, and so uh, that, that's what that's where that was my that was my background. And so I arrived at some of the views I now have over the years uh, strictly because of the science. I didn't come in, if I had any preconceived notions of what diet should do, it was exactly the opposite of what I now come to believe. And that's funny. I know that uh, you, you have a book coming out uh, in the fall. I believe it is called The Future of Nutrition um, that actually not just looks into the future, but actually into the past of nutritional studies. I want to talk to you in just a second about that, but I want to finish up with the, the talk about the coronavirus, COVID-19 with you by asking this. I was speaking with Dr. Baxter Montgomery earlier today. And he was telling me about the patients he's seen who have had COVID-19. They've been positive with it. And he treats them with a whole food plant-based diet and has seen great success in that. And my, my question to you is this, if every doctor in America used that same method of treatment, that same course of treatment, how much less of a burden do you think we would be seeing in the ICUs, in the CCUs throughout America? How many fewer people do you estimate would need ventilators and things of that nature? You know, it, it, we're all guessing in this game and that, that kind of question, as you might anticipate. But uh, I know Baxter very well, Dr. Montgomery. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear that he's trying it. That's really interesting. Uh, Insofar as the, the effect is concerned, from my perspective, without, you know, working with people like he does in the clinic, um, I would say that this effect would most likely impact those people who are testing positive for the coronavirus. It would be affecting them so that they wouldn't, therefore, go and have their difficulty, you know, when it gets, their symptoms appear. So I'm talking about testing asymptomatic a positive test people who then don't get the symptoms, let's say. Or if they do get the symptoms, it's going to be less, less uh, problematic, which is also not so bad because you, it may behave nothing more than like it's a, a fairly simple flu. So that's, that's, the, that's the individuals who most likely would be impacted, in my estimation on this case. Um, the second is more problematic and, and very speculative. And that is people who might be, let's say, around others who are, who are symptomatic or who are positive, you know, and they, they're worried about, you know, being infected as a result of this, this social distancing phenomenon. Um, the ones who are not yet affected, no, have no evidence of that, if they're consuming a plant-based diet, I suspect, and I must emphasize this, this is purely speculation on my part that the plant-based diet may help to prevent those people from actually acquiring the disease in the first place. But let me let, label that you know, speculation for the moment. Uh, I think it's reasonable to make that suggestion, but, uh, but this first one I mentioned, going from, a, from positive to, um, to uh, you know, antibody, basically, or, you know, uh, that, that's the group that's going to be affected. And, and so, oh, yeah, one more thing I, I should say. You were asking about comorbidities before. Yes, sir. You're, you're quite right. Those who are most susceptible for 
you know, suffer the consequences, the severe consequences of infection. They're older, like myself. Uh, and 95% of those people and the evidence we now have, both from Italy and New York City, for example, 95% of those people at least have, have been compromised by nutritional diseases. They've been eating the wrong diet, okay? We already know. We already know that those people already are, are, are in that sort of situation. They can be treated at that point in time, source of diet. And you can see fairly remarkable uh, improvement in their health in a matter of days. We're not talking about, in this case, you know, like weeks or months. We see these kind of changes happening within a day or two, such as drop in cholesterol. And those people who are most affected are the ones with heart disease, cancer, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, you know, high blood sugar, high cholesterol, et cetera. Uh, those people, if they were to change now, the moment they get positive, they were to change. I really, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I run into this very sensitive topic, and I have to be careful when I say this, but my guess is those people are going to suffer much less consequences as a result of it, to answer your question. Hypothetically, as a hypothesis, as you said, I, I would say that given what we know about how effective a plant-based diet can be in uh, treating, reversing, preventing those chronic conditions in the first place, and knowing that they are such a, a, a huge factor in the severity of these COVID-19 cases, I really don't think it's too much of a stretch to go out there with you. I don't think it's a very far limb to, to agree with you at all here. I, I know I'm happy to hear you say that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite confident of the data that we have from China from 30 years ago. And we have a fairly robust collection of data here to make this point. It's a different virus, yes. But we also, by the way, I should tell you, studied this in the laboratory. We studied the effect, for example, of high protein intake on the activation of the virus. That's a viral gene. The ability of animal protein intake, for example, to activate, in a sense, to cause the expression of that gene to actually form liver cancer. In that case, it was liver cancer, pretty serious consequence, obviously. And what we found, again, was very dramatic, that the high-protein diet actually, uh, if we left, kept on a low-protein diet or a non-animal protein diet in, those particular, in that particular case, even though they had the gene to get it, that is sort of active, let's say, the virus is present, no cancer formed. It went from like 100% down to virtually nothing. Mm. So it was another addition. And so when you talk about com comorbidities in this particular case, and 95% of those people have, you know, they're, they're sick with something else, nutritionally compromised diseases, um, those people can, be, can benefit from the fact that their disease, their recipient disease they presently have, can be minimized. And so it's much less likely to become a comorbidity, I guess you could say. For so sure. it's, it's working yeah. both ends of the, of the candle. And just to kind of put a capper on this point, I actually have some hard data in front of me. This is from uh, the New York State Department of Health, uh, leading comorbidities for COVID, uh, COVID fatalities. And tell me, yes or no, uh, if any of these cannot be treated uh, with a diet. Hypertension. Yes, this diet, <clears throat> one of the beautiful things about this diet, it does, it reduces hypertension, yes. Diabetes. Quickly. Yes, definitely. In fact, the effect is so powerful, and Dr. Bernard, 
as you know, it's a PCRM. Did some of that early on. Uh, that it shows that in fact the dietary effect is so prominent that one has to be careful to reduce the medication, you know, at the same time because otherwise it can go into the hypoglycemic shock. Hyperlipidemia. Yes, of course. That's associated with heart disease. It, heart disease is the next one. Yes, of course, same thing. And then dementia, one of the lesser talked about ones. Well, for a reason. <laughs> it is lesser <laughs> talked about because we don't have, you know, enough data on that particular point. Uh, so I'm speaking now from uh, my acquaintance with some folks who have been making observations, and we have to say sort of anecdotal, I think, at this point. Uh, but uh, it's kind of interesting from what I hear. Again, I'd like to rely on the science that's published and been peer-reviewed, et cetera, just like everybody else. But uh, my guess is, yes, it's going to help that too. So my, and those, those are your top five. You know, I think right. that there's some pretty strong hypothesis to, to be drawn, especially with the, with the first four. So very interesting. Right. I, I appreciate your insight. And I want to change gears a little bit here with the time that we have remaining. And I want to ask you uh, about this, this book that you have coming out. I know that it, it'll be in the fall, so a number of months from now. But I understand that you actually – did research on the history of nutrition research, correct? Is that kind of what I'm, I'm piecing together here? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's a, center, that's a significant part of the book because uh, I have to go back in my own personal history on this. You know, I started this kind of research in the 1960s, quite a long time ago. Uh, and then in 1980, which was, was, let's say, about 11 years later, I was invited to be on a, an expert panel, Diet, Nutrition, and Cancer. And was, there was 13 of us, and it was a fairly prominent report at that time that came out. And uh, I was one of the members of the committee who had actually done research in this area. And I talked especially on the role of protein in causing cancer. I took a hit for that, big time. Uh, I got a lot of pushback. I mean, including the proposal to have me thrown out of my society right at the time the executive council had nominated me for president. I mean, I'm talking about really serious stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've had to put up with that sort of nonsense for a long time. That was 1982. And in 1985, 86, I had a chance to do a sabbatical at the University of Oxford in England. And at that time, I was, I was you know, I was, I was experiencing this nonsense. You really almost heresy. Of it. it was vitriolic. And so I, rather than uh, getting concerned about it and beaten down, I, I could have left the field, I think, at, at times. But I decided to go to the library in Oxford and London, two libraries in Oxford, two in London, just to look at the question concerning this, this question. What, is there anything we can learn from the history of nutrition? And in my case, the history of cancer as well, because that was my specialty. Was there anything that we might see in the history that might, explain, that might help to explain this vitriol that was occurring at that time, that still exists today. And of course, you know, we can only talk about industry influence, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that wasn't a good enough answer for me. I wanted to know a little bit more about that. And sure enough, I got into the history and went back to the late 1700s. And I, I you know, wrote for myself quite a lengthy document on that, recorded a lot of that information. And so uh, that today, now in light of... Uh, other experiences continued to do the experimental research all those years and also having a very sub substantial activity in 
policy development at the national level. I was on different committees and stuff like that, giving testimony before congressional committees and so forth and so on. So I, I had this opportunity of, you know, being in the lab, getting that kind of information over the years, being in the policy arena, seeing you know, how, how uh, science is translated into public policy, and then adding the history to that. So my book is really about that. It's simply so sort of say, okay, here's what I think I know. Here's the level of the experience I've had. You know, much of it great, very, very nice, but some of it really pretty nasty. Uh, and then taking that combination of experiences and going back and saying, hey, where did this stuff come from? Is there any basis for this? And, and I have to tell you, the history is absolutely, that's one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. The history gives us the answer, in my view. I'm going out on a limb. I, I really think it's just, it's fantastic. And it really started in the late 1700s and emerged to some extent, it started getting exposed to some extent in 1800s. But then at that point in time, we chose the wrong path. We chose the <laughs> do, wrong path. And we ended up with a mess on our hands. Do, do you know, like, was there one specific moment where we kind of came to that fork in the road is, and, and we went on that wrong path as opposed to a healthier journey? Well, um, I don't know whether there's one particular point. I could name several probably. But uh, I think the one point that probably struck me, I just mentioned, you know, being on that committee and uh, being rather, uh, it became a bit of uh, the public face of that committee to some extent because the uh, committee, the National Academy, had asked me to give testimony on behalf of the committee to a couple of members, a couple of House committees or Senate committees. And, you know, I, I was out, out in the public in a sense quite a bit. And uh, just the mere fact of seeing the vitriol, seeing the hostility, seeing what some people are willing to do to try to get me buried. Uh, unfortunately, I had tenure at the time. And that's another issue I find uh, as, for me is extremely important. I had academic, I had tenure from Cornell University. And so I, I uh, was protected, I believe, because had I not been protected, I wouldn't today be here talking about this, I can tell you for sure. Um, and so that, that in a sense, was, uh, yeah, that was a moment. That was a moment. And many more than that. <laughs> I want to go back, if if you will, to the, the late 1700s. I've never looked at early nutrition research without giving away too much about your book. What exactly were they looking at during that period? Well, I can tell you a couple of ideas. Uh, there was a physician at the Middlesex Hospital in London in the early 1800s. A uh, young man at the time, he was being trained in, in medicine. He, they called it surgery in those days. But in any case, he, uh, about 18 years of age, has some illness of his own. I'm not sure exactly what the nature of it was. But he decided to eat plants. He called it vegetables. vegetables, And uh, he experienced the results. And then he was a specialist in treating cancer patients. And so he wanted to try the vegetable diet on, cancer, on his cancer patients. And he was turned down. He was turned down by Sorry, the authorities at Middlesex that. Hospital. So I got my phone here. Uh, in any case, it was turned down. Uh, he went back a second time, turned, got turned down again. I actually retrieved those two proposals, read them. And so I saw that he wasn't getting any place. 
Well, he went on, he recovered his own health. He treated cancer patients over the years. I don't know, those records aren't available, but he went on to live, you know, uh, the rest of his life uh, talking about this. And so uh, then the question becomes, you know, why, why were they turning him down? What, what's the issue here? Because at that time, we didn't have really any nutritional, fundamental nutrition information, really, to speak of. And so uh, that gets into a question of just asking that question. Why were people so hostile to this idea of testing a vegetable diet on, on, on breast cancer patients? So that's part of my story. I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> but uh, eventually it, mer it emerged. Uh, some of that emerged in 1839 with the discovery of a nutrient called protein. Ah. And so and this, yeah. the word protein, P-R-O-T-E-I-N, comes from the Greek word proteos, which means of prime importance. I'll leave it. I'll, I'll stop there. Let me I'll just set the stage. I st uh, but it's really, really interesting. It, it really is. I had no idea that it dated back so long, uh, so far back, because the earliest I can recall prior to speaking with you just now of anybody making that connection between uh, protein and, and cancer was a headline in the early 20th century. I believe it was the New York Times. It said, uh, cancer increasing among meat eaters. And so I'm thinking, wow, we've known about this connection for more than a century, but uh, we're, we're looking at two, you know, almost 250 years, 230 years at this point, huh? Yeah, well, it turns out, that, yeah, I don't know 250, but you know, a long time. Uh, you know, the, this one I'm telling you about early 18, yeah, that's 200, that's 200 years, yeah. Uh, but one of the key people who actually promoted a really critical idea that I now embrace is a man who published 14 books. He was a surgeon. By the time he was 41 years of age, he became a vegetarian. He didn't use that word at that time. But he published his first book in 1824. Went on to publish others during the middle 1800s. And he espoused an idea that I'll be discussing in the book. It turns out that man is either my great-grandfather or his brother. I'm not sure which, but it's certainly positive. I mean, my father was named after him and my son, who's now a physician, is named after my father. So we're carrying the name. I had no idea of that because my father had immigrated from Northern Ireland. As a, you know, he's in a farm family. And uh, one, one of them went off straight off in the 1800s and became a fairly famous doctor. And I discovered that accidentally when I was in, Lon in the uh, Oxford and London libraries, his <laughs> role in all this. So... Um, it was been, yeah, quite the discovery. Who knew that uh, it's been running in the family for so long, huh? Yeah, we're all farmers. That's all we were. And uh, we had one, one guy in, in, in my past decided to take a different course. Let me ask you this as we kind of begin to wrap things up a little bit. You were talking about all of the pushback that you got um, in your career. And I'm curious... Would you do anything differently knowing how much you've been able to spread the word about this and capture people's attention? Would you do anything differently to try to, I guess, avoid all of that trouble? Or was that kind of a, a necessary evil for you to get to where we are today? 
Well, I, first thing I, I should tell you, I mean, that, that uh, kind of hostility and stuff caught me a bit by surprise. I, I was very naive. Uh, I was the first one to ever go to college in my family. So, you know, sort of getting into the science arena, in my sense, I thought was, you know, a fairly simple thing to do. You know, it was a fairly civil society. But when I saw that kind of thing, that surprised me. Uh, it was not pleasant. Uh, I paid a big price for that, uh, you know, a number of different ways. Uh, and as I look back, uh, I would do it again. I would do it again in spite of the price I paid. Uh, because it turns out, and there's, a, there's another side of that coin, and, and that is that though the stuff I saw and I experienced at, you know, at fairly senior levels, um, in fact, yeah, the stuff I saw uh, was not anticipated, but it became, was very acute and made me ask, unless I lost my mind in the, in the process, I just, just made me ask myself, why are these people being so hostile? People who had previously had been so kind and so helpful. They had thought I'd lost my mind when I started talking about in the early 18, in, in 1980s, started talking about the possibility that animal protein increases its experimental cancer. I mean, you're talking about, you know, uh, two lighting two fires at the same time and then poured gasoline on it. That's really <laughs> what it amounted to. And so as I look back to answer your question, no, I would not have changed a thing. Yeah, I could have had some more good fortune, I guess, along the way on a personal side, but I just basically said the hell with it. I, I Sorry about that, but... Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, it was a it was a tough time, but uh, nonetheless, I learned because of that. Had I not had those experiences, I don't think I would know today what I have come to know. It was actually those experiences. I should dedicate my book to that crowd, uh, you know, because uh, it got me here to where you know I was able to tell the story. So you used it as motivation then to continue on with your work. Motivation, yeah. Have you heard from any of uh, any of those detractors over the years who have uh, looked at your research and said, "Well, geez, Louise, Colin, I'm I'm sorry, you were really onto something." No, not not quite. Yes, actually, there are a couple uh, earlier ones, older gentlemen who knew me when I was younger, and and uh, I've got a couple of letters that, that came my way when. When I was in his 90s, you know, both of them in their 90s wrote me a very kind letter and said just more or less what you just said, uh, you know, compliment me for, you know, sticking with it in, in a sense. But basically, no, the others that were involved in this, uh, no, they went, they, they passed, still really, you know, uh, convinced that I had beat, there are words. This is words at one time on a, on a real situation when they tried to throw me out of the society. They said I had betrayed my nutrition community. Hmm. And so therefore I, I deserve the, you know, the, the uh, treatment I got. They never retracted that. It, uh, it very much takes a strong person to stick to their guns when everybody's coming at them so uh, heavily with pitchforks. And, uh, and you certainly did that. And I will say that the world is a healthier place for that. And for that, there is so many people who owe you a debt of gratitude. So on their behalf, I will just say thank you. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm just so happy 
to hear that, you know, there are others, of course, now, especially in the clinical area, uh, who are actually working with people now. Like you just told me the story about Baxter Montgomery. Baxter was a wonderful guy, by the way, personally and professionally. I love that guy. But in any case, uh, he, he's, he's taken this kind of information and others, many others, working with patients. I can only feel for those patients. I, I've met many of them. I've met these kind of people. And it's very gratifying. That's why I would never do anything different, just to realize that, you know, some people had gained from this. It's not as nice. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you uh, for the past 40 minutes or so. And I can't wait until uh, your book comes out in the fall. Again, it is called The Future of Nutrition. And I just, I, I'm a history guy, so I love the fact that it's the future of nutrition, but it looks to the past as well. And I'm so thrilled about this. Thank you for the invitation. Think about that for a minute. Let what Dr. Campbell said marinate in your mind. The connection between our diet and viruses has been on the books for years, decades even. Dr. Campbell said that he was excited by this, and honestly, we all should be. Because if that hypothesis of his holds true, this is a potential game changer. I remember being so struck by what he was saying. And then it was like an an aha moment. It was an epiphany of sorts. Is America in the shape that it's in with this pandemic because of the overall shape that it's in as a country? We are one of the leading nations in terms of obesity. So does it then stand to reason that we also have the highest number of COVID cases of anywhere in the world. While we cannot say for certain that the answer to that question is yes, it does appear still to be a big piece of the puzzle. And that also reminds me of another conversation I had recently with esteemed plant-based cardiologist, Dr. Baxter Montgomery. And Dr. Montgomery right now, he is on the front lines treating COVID-19 patients in Houston. And what sets him apart from the rest is that he is using a nutrition-first approach. He was telling me that he treated one particular patient This was an elderly man who developed double pneumonia and tested positive for COVID-19. This gentleman was in a bad, bad way. And by no means was his recovery a cakewalk. But he did recover. He recovered when so many others of his age are not as fortunate. Could a plant-based diet be a major reason why he was then one of the lucky ones? We do know that a plant-based diet can help with the majority of the leading comorbidities in cases of COVID-19 fatalities. And again, with the virus being so new, we're really just connecting the dots at this point. But with each 
passing day, it appears that that connection is growing stronger. Before we move on, I want to take a second to thank Gwen Whitaker and her team for organizing the virtual Fairfax VegFest. Check this out. Rather than canceling the event altogether because of the pandemic, Gwen quickly pivoted to making this a digital thing, taking it into the virtual realm and lined up this incredible list of speakers. Dr. Campbell, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Neil Barnard, animal rescue advocates, and my next guest as well, Nelson Campbell. Now, Nelson is a world traveler, and he has a heck of a story to tell. Well, it kind of caught me off guard, to be honest with you. He said that not only had he recently been in Italy, at the Vatican, as a matter of fact, talking about nutrition. Not only had he been there at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, but then he went on a cruise. So you want to talk about a journey? Nelson Campbell has himself one heck of a story to tell, but at the heart of our conversation are the efforts that he and his team at Plant Pure Nation are making, not just to help with the current pandemic, but also to improve the health of so many others for the rest of their lives. He is bringing to light the ability to reverse heart disease and diabetes and lower the risk of cancer, the same efforts that his father has been making for generations. And the efforts that Nelson and his team are making, they are tireless and they are selfless. And it was an honor to be able to chat with him, to get an update on everything that they've been doing as well as his health. Nelson Campbell, welcome to the virtual Fairfax VegFest and the Exam Room Podcast here by the Physicians Committee. Uh, my goodness gracious, you are a busy gentleman. You are the founder of uh, Plant Pure Nation. You now also do so much in the community with Plant Pure Communities, and you also wrote and directed Plant Pure Nation, that wonderful film. I mean, you you have your hands in all sorts of plant-based cookie jars, my friend. Well, it's been a long journey, Chuck. Um, it started out uh, actually over 10 years ago. Um, my background is as a socially conscious entrepreneur, and I decided over 10 years ago to embark on a, on a journey to try to um, implement a, a vision I had for um, a community-based grassroots movement to help promote this health message. And it's a rather complex um, vision. So there are a number of different elements and we've just been working, uh, working away over the, these years, working on, on one after another and where it's all finally starting to come together. Let's talk about how that message is kind of resonating in these communities that you're working with. We hear so much time and again about the standard American diet and we hear all of these grim statistics about obesity being on the rise, diabetes being on the rise, all of that. In the communities that you're going to work in, how receptive are the people there to this message? 
Well, you know, I find that people are, are very receptive and it's really all in how you communicate this idea. So, um, you know, we've done, we have a 10 day program we've created. It's a jumpstart program that has education. It's supported by food that we've developed and it provides an opportunity for people to go on the diet for 10 days. And if they, especially if they do pre and post biometric testing, um, it's a very impactful experience for people, but we've done that all over the country. And, um, but I find that everywhere people are receptive. So for example, uh, we, did a program, uh, a couple programs in a community in southwestern Louisiana, a Cajun community. And we went to a small town, uh, actually started working on a tra- in a trailer park community there. The, the, the health statistics there were very dire and people weren't used to eating plant-based for sure. And, um, and we had great success there in that jumpstart. We've been doing work in New York City with Somos Community Care. They service uh, Medicaid patients in four of the five boroughs, a mostly Latino uh, population. We've had great success there. Um, we had great success in, in Mebane, North Carolina, which uh, we showed in our film, Plant Pure Nation. It's a small Southern town, rural town, and uh, kind of uh, in the stroke belt, uh, if you will, and um, had great success there. So it's really in how you communicate the idea. It's, you know, you have to communicate it in a way that resonates with people's core values. And how do you find what particular, I guess, what particular nerve you want to strike with, with the people? Because everybody's core value is, it's, it's can be the same in communities, but it's a little bit different for everybody as well. So how do you reach that person on that individual level as well? Well, <clears throat> One thing that really resonates with people is the idea of control. You know, I think that it's a characteristic of our age. I think people, you know, they're, they're looking out at the world through their screens and they see a world that seems to be spinning out of control and they feel like they don't really have a say in what's happening. And when they understand that they can control what's most important to them, which is their health, That's a very empowering, very liberating idea. Most people want to take responsibility because it's only through the exercise of personal responsibility that you actually gain freedom. And and so most people will will take that opportunity if given. And then also, uh, you know, people love the idea of, of taking an idea like this and sharing it with the people around them. You know, it's it's. You know, people want to have control over their own lives, but they also want to love the people around them. That's our default nature. We're we're compassionate at our core. And so the, the notion that that there's this incredible gift that they can give to themselves and then the people around them uh, is also very motivating. Let's switch gears uh, really quick and talk about some of your recent adventures, which I think are, you know, definitely sort of uh, eyebrow raising, given the fact that we're in the middle of this pandemic. You were recently over in Italy and you were on a cruise. Um, How are you? (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I didn't really see all this coming, uh, this terrible mess that we're in and this this, uh, very sad situation. But in February, I went to Italy and uh, met with senior advisors to Pope Francis. Uh, that meeting was about 10 months in the making, but had an opportunity to talk to his senior advisors about 
plant-based nutrition and especially its connection to climate. Um, and so that was a, a wonderful opportunity. And uh, actually the um, Rome Reports, which is a media arm of the Vatican, they did a real nice story on, on our visit. Um, and then came back the next week. And, and yes, I went on a... <laughs> Uh, cruise liner because the, there's this program called the Holistic Health Cruise, which if you haven't heard about it, it's a it's a program that's focused really on plant based nutrition, and but it happens to be an Italian cruise liner. <laughs> so <laughs> so two thirds of the people are in the program, and then one third uh, are, are are mostly from Italy. And and I went because I had to present, and, and my wife also gave some presentations, so we were presenters. Then we came back and we promptly got the flu. <laughs> so, but it wasn't bad. It was, uh, it was actually pretty mild. Uh, we had, you know, all the symptoms they say that you have with COVID, but, but COVID but it was very, very mild. So I don't know if we really had it or not. I have, I have no idea, but uh, I'm feeling great now. I, I had no idea that uh, you felt a, a little bit ill. When yeah. you first started to hear about COVID and you're looking at your symptoms, did you, I mean, was there a moment of concern there or were you pretty sure like, I, I got this? Yeah, no, I felt that way. Um, I, I never get, you know, really, really sick. I think I, that's happened to me once in the last 30 years or so that I've, that I've gotten really sick. But um, when I usually, when I get something, it passes pretty fast. So uh, this was no big deal. And it could have just been a traditional flu virus. I, I don't really know. Speaking with your father uh, earlier today, and I was asking him, I was like, well, listen, do you think that if everybody were to be eating a plant-based diet, we would not be seeing any of this talk of needing to flatten the curve. There wouldn't be this extreme taxation of our medical system. There wouldn't be a shortage of hospital beds. And we certainly wouldn't see the number of fatalities that we are with this disease. What he said seems to make a whole lot of sense based off of the data that he was able to share based off of the China study. Would you agree that, that that's your assessment as well? Yes. In fact, uh, he probably told you that he wrote an article on this that uh, we recently published through our nonprofit, Plant Pure Communities. And it's a very compelling article. But the, the basis for that article was a discussion that we had after we read uh, of a study in Italy that was done by the National Health Authority there, where they found that over 99% of all the people who uh, sadly succumbed to this disease over 99% had pre-existing uh, health conditions. And of course, most of that is chronic disease related, which is lifestyle related. It's all about nutrition. And so, um, yeah, it stands to reason that if, you know, if we're eating the right foods, um, that, that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be able to, to survive this disease. And and we need to be getting that message out there. And of course, my dad probably shared with you some interesting data that he found in his China study to support this point. But it's very compelling because, you know, the diet that will prevent and re reverse chronic disease, it stands to reason it also would help with infectious disease because health is health is health, no matter what you're talking about with respect to the body. And um, the sad thing is that that our, our political leadership and our national media, they're not talking about this. You know, I've been watching the news, as I'm sure you have and everyone else has. And I haven't even heard the word nutrition uttered once by anyone. 
And, and there are very, uh, you know, well-known uh, medical kind of experts and talking heads on the news who know of the China study and know of my dad's book and have interviewed him and talked to him. And, and yet there's no discussion about this. So one of the things that we're doing right now through our nonprofit Plant Pure Communities is we're launching a global jumpstart. And it's a 10-day program where everyone goes through it together and they live plant-based for 10 days. And we're providing a lot of education and seminar recipes, videos, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. And we just kicked it off today. And, uh, but we'll be doing another one uh, early in May. I think that one's going to start May 10th. Um, but we had over 5,000 people sign up from 75 different countries uh, around the world. So how did you reach such a wide audience? 75 countries, 5,000 people. That's, that's quite a bit. Yeah, well, we, we just actually hatched the idea two weeks ago. <laughs> so we've been, working, we've been working pretty hard. We have a, a small but very committed team uh, in, in our nonprofit. They work really, really hard, and they're really passionate. Um, and they've done an amazing job pulling this together in two weeks. But we just did a lot of, you know, social media promotion. My dad's uh, also his organization. He's got a nonprofit, Center for Nutrition Studies. They did some promotion. We did a video. We put that out there. Of course, my dad's article pulled a lot of people in. So we're hoping that, and we're going to keep doing this, you know, probably keep doing this every month. Um, and, and so we're hoping that the next jumpstart will be, will be even bigger. I think a, a lot of people watching this right now are like, hot diggity, man, let me get involved in this. So what, what is the process here with, with the 10 day? Like they want to share it with their friends and their families. So what is the process for registering yourself? Yeah, so it's um, at plantpurecommunities.org. And the registration for this jumpstart actually doesn't close out till midnight tonight, I think. Um, but then after that, when people sign up, it'll be for the May night jumpstart. And again, uh, there's tons of information. There's um, a beautiful seminar, online seminar, and beautiful workbook and recipe videos that they get each day, and uh, uh, you know all kinds of stuff. Um, so, I want to talk to you about actually the food that uh, that uh, you put out because you know at the end of the day, everybody loves food, right? We all love to eat. I I appreciate food now more being plant based than I ever did when I was four hundred pounds. And if you could just kind of tell us some of the things that you guys are are putting out, and you know, let us just salivate for a little bit, I would really appreciate that because here where I am in Washington, it's it's getting close to dinner time. So get me going. All right. So um, started. Uh, well, I'll just take a step back. So a lot of what we're doing really happened on the heels of a film that, that, that I wrote and directed, directed called Plant Pure Nation. And probably many of your, uh, uh, view, uh, our viewers have seen that. But if not, it can be found on Amazon Prime, YouTube and other, other platforms. Um, and we use that film to kind of create uh, a platform to do everything that we've done since. And one area of focus has been Plant Pure, which is our, our business. And in that business, we focused on food, education, and a really, really exciting web-based social action platform that we're getting ready to introduce. 
Um, but a lot of what we've done has been focused on the food because back when we were starting this and we were trying to do jump starts, there, there, there were no whole food plant-based meal plans around that we could use. So we, we, we started working on our own food line. Um, today we have, um, close to 50 products. Um, 34 of them are frozen products and they're, uh, essentially mostly frozen entrees. And we're, we're, we're in, re in retail now, so we're in large supermarket chains with a subset of those. We also have an, an offering now for food service. Of course, the food service sector in this crisis is, is really not operating at the moment. Um, and then we have a line of meal starter products that we've developed as well that we're very excited about. These are products where you can just add a wet ingredient and some produce and quickly make a meal. And we created that product line because we 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 wanted to be able to to get this kind of food to people in the most affordable manner possible. Um, that's that's something that's very important to me. Is how do we get this information and food into low income communities? So we created this product line, and we're going to waive a hundred percent of our profit on that product line when it's distributed to people who are in the Medicaid program. So, um, so we have all of those products, and 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 and, and if you're interested, you can uh, you can go to Publix, um, Harris Teeter, Shaw's. You can find our frozen entrees there. We also have them online at PlantPureNation.com, so you can you can order them there as well. The meal starter products aren't quite out yet because we're just finalizing them. They're getting close. I, I want to go back to the education component because in almost everything that you've said today, you've prefaced it with education. And how important is that uh, in terms of kind of digging ourselves out of this hole that we are in, by and large, in in a society? I I view it personally as that old um, adage, and probably not the right form to use this, but teach a man to fish. You know, you educate the person how to do it, and he eats for a lifetime. So in this case, teach a man to grow soy, and he will eat for a lifetime. Whereas just giving him one particular meal and he eats one time, but you're actually educating people. How gratifying is it to see kind of the light bulbs go off in their heads and know like, Hey, it's clicking with them. And this is, will be a lasting change for this person. Yeah. So um, that's a very gratifying experience. And um, you know, I've had the pleasure of seeing that happen over and over and over again. And, and for us, education is, a, is kind of a broad concept. It's what can we deliver, you know, uh, uh, like through a seminar, for example, um, or, or a, a workbook of some sort. But there's also experiential education. There's, there's wisdom and knowledge that comes from experience. And so that's why we created the Jumpstart program uh, is we've, we have education, kind of traditional education, they're explaining to people the why, but then we also uh, make it easy for them to live plant-based for 10 days so they get the experience. And when you combine that book knowledge with the experience, it's powerful. So, um, and I've seen that light bulb go off a lot and it's, it's very gratifying. Is there anybody or any particular story that you could share of somebody that you've you've worked with or you've seen through the nonprofit that has really just had this incredible, remarkable transformation and not only touched you, but is now serving as an inspiration to others 
who are going down that same path. Yeah. I mean, we've, and there've been so many Chuck um, we've had, you know, type two diabetics who, you know, even within 10 days were able to get off their insulin. Um, we had one fellow who's uh, who, who was healing so fast that he actually started to have some issues because uh, his insulin wasn't getting decreased quick enough. And he was, you know, taking too much for his body uh, based on where it was because it was healing so quickly. Um, we've had, um, we had a gentleman who had advanced brain cancer and did this and um, the cancer reversed. Um, we've had, uh, you know, people who suffered arthritis, a lady who uh, couldn't walk upstairs um, because she was in such pain. And by the end of the jump start, she was so excited because she could go upstairs. You know, um, we had another fellow who um, had really severe gout, overweight, a lot of aches and pains. And he basically just lived between his kitchen um, bathroom and the recliner in, in his uh, living room. And within three to four weeks, he was outside with the push mower mowing the lawn. I mean, we've had so many stories like this, uh, just on and on and on. And, and, and that's why it's so upsetting now in the midst of this health crisis, you know, when people seem to be so health conscious, that the media and our leadership, they're not talking about the most important idea, which is the food that we eat. What then would you say that we could do as far as adjusting our own tactic to get that conversation going on a larger scale level? What would you say that you would need to do in order to capture the media's attention? I think we need to do something in a grassroots way that's really big and something that's well organized and something that connects the whole community together. You know, um, I've been in this field for a long time. I've known about it through my father. Um, You know, I remember back in the day when I didn't know anyone who was <laughs> really promoting this. And so, so we've gotten to know a lot of the folks. And, and I think that we need to do a better job of coming together and connecting and not worrying about, you know, our brand or our turf or our, 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 our piece of this. Um, so we need to come together. And, and this is something that actually we're working on right now. So, so through our nonprofit, um, one of the things that we've done is we've started these local support and advocacy groups called pods. And we had a call to action at the end of our film, Plant Your Nation. People have answered that. And we've got hundreds of thousands of people now who are involved in that pod network. Um, and of course, we're also doing some interesting climate advocacy, advocacy around the food climate connection there as well. And this global jumpstart, all that's happening through the, the nonprofit. But we also have been working for three years on programming through PlantPure, a web-based social action platform that will provide project templates and resources to support those projects to local groups like pods and other local advocacy groups. So they'll be able to go onto the platform, access those strategies and resources to do things. We also have a media feed uh, there and we have an aggressive media strategy to develop media and stream it down through the platform to educate and inspire people at the grassroots level to do things. So uh, and then and then the other the third kind of key feature of this is that we can invite in other organizations to spearhead these projects. So so we have a project that's focused on healthcare providers. And we've been talking to Plantrition Project about heading that up. 
And so they're going to be involved in that. And we can do that with respect to all of the these project concepts that we have on the platform. So I see this as a way of bringing people together, bringing the community together to, to, to organize and empower people at the local level to do things, which is what we need, and to inspire them through media, you know, to do things. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of a better way to, to kind of wrap things up than end it with, we need to inspire people. We need to push for change. We need to continue to get the word out there. And I know that that is something you and your team at Plant Pure are just working tirelessly to do. And so for that, sir, you are to be commended. All right. Well, well, thank you. And um, uh, one, one of the things, my, my, my wife is probably watching this, so I, uh, <laughs> she would get after me. I there you go. In terms of the, of the education thing, we're, we're also launching a program called Plant Pure Kitchen Live, which people can learn about at plantpurenation.com. It's a really amazing uh, cooking show for people who are interested in learning how to cook. Um, so I'd encourage folks to go there. And, and then again, uh, check out this global jumpstart at plantpurecommunities.org and go to Plant Pure Nation as well and sign up to our newsletter list because all of this stuff that I've mentioned to you here today, we're going to be announcing, you know, over the next couple months in phases. And um, we want people to be involved with us. And we will put up the links to all of those things uh, on our social media channels as well. That is just fantastic. And I wish you guys all the best in, in all of your efforts. And I look forward to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, would love to have you back on the exam room sometime and give us an update on how things are going. I would love to do that, Chuck. Um, this is, um, uh, it, what we do is it's all social, uh, you know, money as an end unto itself can be an evil thing. But if, if money is a means to do something really socially meaningful, then it's a good thing. And so, you know, that's why we're trying to create an economic engine through Plant Pure. And then we have our nonprofit. And, and by the way, I forgot to mention that we're going to be donating um, half of our future profits uh, to nonprofit organizations who are involved in our grassroots movement strategy. So, you know, we're going to have to, to reinvest back into that economic engine to sustain it, build it and expand it. But for every dollar that we have to, that we put there, we're going to, we're going to share a dollar with, uh, with nonprofits, kind of a Newman's own model. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's all about, you know, what can we do to change the world? Because the, we're, you know, we're in a tough spot. <laughs> the, no but the, good, the good news is that there's a lot of solutions out there. And, and there are a lot of people who want to be part of the solution. If we could just figure out how to get how to connect everyone, and, and not just connect them, but plug them into to ideas and resources so that they can be part of a solution. Nelson Campbell, you indeed, my friend are part of the solution. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Chuck. I enjoyed being here. Coming up on the next broadcast, we are going to be checking in with Dr. Baxter Montgomery down in Houston. He is the cardiologist treating COVID-19 patients using a nutrition-first approach. Plus, we're also going to be answering your questions when Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Vanita Rahman join me. So if you have a question now, 
now, my friend, is the time to get that in. Get a jump on the competition because we will be recording this live on Facebook on Wednesday, Wednesday, April 22nd at noon Eastern during the exam room live. We're going to be recording this Q&A live and there are going to be a lot of questions flying in as soon as we record this segment. So get your question in early. Really anything about the coronavirus or your health will do. You can send your question to us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And the Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Just be sure when you send in that question that you use the hashtag ExamRoomPodcast. And then you can also find us on Facebook and message us there a little bit early. We will be getting to as many of your questions as we possibly can. So go ahead and get them in early. And now something else exciting coming up also in the near future. We will be talking about the connection between gut health and COVID-19 with gastroenterologist Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Now, he is the author of the new book, Fiber Fueled, and we're going to learn how critical of a role your gut microbiome can play in terms of immune function and the body's ability to fight off viruses. And so, no, there is no actual immunity to the coronavirus, but it does appear that the healthier a person is, and the healthier their gut microbiome is, actually, the better than their chances of having mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. A big part of this starts in the gut, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. But before then, we can use your help. We need your help to get this information in front of the people who need it the most. Because at the heart of the exam room is the drive to make the world a healthier place. And one of the best ways that you can help us achieve that goal is by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, really wherever shows are available. And when you do, also please leave a five-star review because not only then, Will you be getting these new episodes automatically? But you'll also be helping to get this information to the people who need it the most. Because the more subscriptions we get and the more positive reviews we get, the more five-star ratings, the higher we climb in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to find us. So if you could just do those simple steps and help us out, Really, you'd be helping the next person lead a healthier life. And that's going to do it for us today. My thanks again to the one and only Dr. T. Colin Campbell, as well as his son, Nelson. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based.